1938, on a humid night just north of Miami, crowds of well-dressed partiers milled in and out of a beautiful casino within walking distance of the Atlantic Ocean. Inside the casino, everything was high class. The best food and drink, plush carpets, world-class floor shows. The wealthy guests had flocked to the casino from all over the country to take in the glamorous ambiance and indulge in newly legalized liquor and still illegal gambling. Despite the blatantly illegal nature of the festivities, the guests had nothing to fear from the authorities. They were being paid off, and many local cops and judges were regulars at the casinos, drinking and gambling with everyone else. Among the revelers, some men stood out. While they were not dealing cards or pouring drinks, it was clear they were working. It was also clear that these men were not from Florida and had Jewish and Italian features out of place in the southern state. While they were all well-dressed, polite, and sober, they had a soft air of menace about them and kept a close eye on everything going on around them. It made sense. They owned this casino, along with the restaurant next door and the low-rent dice den around the street. These men had become rich in the heady, profitable violence of prohibition. And now that alcohol was legal again, they were branching out, diversifying their criminal endeavors and expanding their reach outside of their home cities. They would not only move into gambling, prostitution, and narcotics, but also insidiously spread their reach to labor unions, legitimate businesses, and the political process, creating a hidden empire of crime that would control the American economy and enrich two generations of American wise guys. Five years before, in 1933, the gangsters of New York City were riding high. After a decade of increasingly violent liquor wars, the criminal landscape had reached a relatively peaceful equilibrium. The various power-hungry gang lords who dropped hundreds of bodies trying to be the boss of all bosses were all dead. Instead, they were replaced by the collaborative, consensus-based commission. Nurtured by Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, and their inner circle of forward-thinking Italian and Jewish gangsters, the commission provided a forum for the major gangsters of New York and beyond to carve up territory, unite against common threats, and mediate disputes peacefully. The commission was largely successful and did away with the criminal anarchy that defined so much of the 1920s without instituting the despotism of a boss of all bosses. While only Italians were allowed to become full, made members of the five families that officially made up the commission, Jewish, Irish, and other groups were often able to get into on the system by associating with an established family. While some non-Italians, including most notably Meyer Lansky and his Jewish cohorts in the Bugs Meyer mob, were made mafiosos in all but name, generally speaking, non-Italians could only rise so high in the five families and were constantly vulnerable. These five families all still exist today, and went on to totally dominate illicit and legitimate business in New York and much of North America for the next two generations. Joining these Italian families in the 1930s was the so-called Combination, a largely Jewish group led by a psychotic Jewish guy named Dutch Schultz, which operated mainly out of the Bronx. I haven't really mentioned Dutch in this podcast yet which is a real shame, because he was a true giant on the streets throughout the entire period of Prohibition. Dutch was born Arthur Fledgeheimer in New York to a desperately poor family of Jewish immigrants in 1901, and mainly grew up in the Bronx. Dutch's father abandoned the family early, and while there aren't many sources, we can be confident that young Dutch had it rough. 
Just like Lucky and Meyer, Dutch was forced to drop out of school early, first working menial, dangerous industrial jobs, but quickly moving on to crime. He developed a reputation as an unusually violent guy and got incarcerated as a teenager, where he was tagged as an unmanageable, escape-prone convict. Dutch got released from his first bid in 1920, right when Prohibition started and quickly began muscling his way to the top of the liquor game in the Bronx through his characteristic psychotic violence. Dutch was supposedly very intelligent and often pleasant one-on-one, but he had a real temper, and the consensus is that Dutch was way more brutal than even violent gangsters like Masseria and Maranzano. There are multiple confirmed stories about Dutch murdering longtime associates, some of them childhood friends, on a whim over minor disagreements, but it went way farther than that. According to one story, when a rival Jewish gangster wouldn't buy booze from him, Dutch had the guy kidnapped, hung by his thumbs from meat hooks, and brutally beaten. Just to hammer the point home, Dutch then had his henchmen cover his rival's eyes with filthy medical gauze soaked in discharge from a gonorrhea patient, permanently blinding him. This brutal MO apparently worked. People don't like being blinded with infected bandages, after all. And by 1933, Dutch Schultz and his combine dominated criminal activity in the Bronx. His power was such that even the generally anti-Semitic Italians of the five families recognized him, often referring to his primarily Jewish combine organization as the Sixth Family. This six-part domination of crime in New York didn't completely end organized criminal violence. Upstart crews that didn't bow to the commission's rules were liquidated, and of course drug addicts, degenerate gamblers, and other citizens who couldn't pay their debts were routinely assaulted and murdered. But the large-scale gang wars that characterized the 1920s were largely a thing of the past. This peace not only made the gangsters physically safer, it also cut down on police attention and the cost of paying goons and soldiers, and made the whole thing even more profitable. However, While the underworld was experiencing a golden age of good governance in the early 1930s, legitimate financial and political institutions were failing, badly. In October 1929, a combination of underregulation, irrational exuberance, and outright fraud by unethical traders led to a massive run on the stock market. In the last week of October 1929, the U.S. economy lost $30 billion. To put this in perspective, this was 10 times more than the entire federal budget and more of all of what the U.S. spent in the entirety of World War I. Gone. In a single week of panic trading. Making matters worse, banks of all kinds had recklessly invested their clients' money in the stock market. And with such a huge fall in value, this meant the average American's bank account was wiped out regardless of their involvement in the stock market. Everyone from struggling farmers and workers to the richest captains of industry were suddenly broke. This created a vicious cycle where newly destitute individuals and companies stopped making all but the most necessary purchases, which further depressed the economy. By 1930, the value of shares had fallen by 90%, a loss that wouldn't be recouped until the 1950s. Worse than this, unemployment reached truly gargantuan levels, and by 1932, 25% of working-age American men were out of a job. Because of the monopolistic structure of the commission system, mobsters like Lucky and Meyer were largely insulated from the worst of the Depression. 
unemployed, stressed out, and depressed people might have fewer means with which to gamble and drink, but they almost always have more desire to do so. And the mobsters of New York were endlessly skillful in making destitute addicts pay up. In any case, the armies of unemployed young people provided cheap legions of schemers and legbreakers for Meyer, Lucky, and the other commission bosses. We don't have any good financial records for the commission gangs at this point. They were secret societies involved in criminal conspiracies, after all. But it seems that in the early years of the Depression, business basically went on as normal. Lucky, Meyer, and other commission gangsters were involved in gambling, labor racketeering, and other crimes. But making, distributing, and selling liquor was the main money maker, and business was booming. However, in 1933, everything changed. The basis for the commission's immense success was the federal prohibition on alcohol. Prohibition, instituted by both a constitutional amendment and an act of Congress in 1919, had been supported by a coalition of devout Protestants, progressive reformers, and xenophobic anti-immigrant activists. Campaigners for Prohibition had offered it as a way to end the misery associated with alcohol abuse, make society more law-abiding, and marginalize Catholic and Jewish immigrants who are associated with various forms of public alcohol consumption. There had always been strenuous opposition to prohibition from alcohol producers, Catholic political blocs, and others. And by the 1930s, even supporters of the initial law had to admit it wasn't working out. Alcohol was still widely consumed, and driving it underground had made many of the associated problems worse. People of all social classes openly flouted the law, and thus made a mockery of rule of law generally. Finally, far from marginalizing the rising power of immigrant groups, it empowered and enriched a whole generation of Catholic and Jewish gang members. By the 1930s, most of the moralizing Quakers, progressive reformers, and anti-Catholic bigots of America opposed prohibition as much as the average Catholic Manhattanite, and things became unsustainable. Further driving the point home, due to the Depression, state and federal governments were starved of revenue and greedily eyed the potential tax revenues of legalized booze. Thus, in 1933, prohibition was repealed to almost universal celebration. This, of course, created a sea change in the world of organized crime. Some gangsters simply stopped being criminals and used their know-how and capital to invest in the newly legal booze industry and other legitimate businesses. Most gangsters, however, while investing in legal companies, weren't about to hang it up and simply used their prohibition profits to double down on criminality and take over non-alcohol-related rackets. While the six crime families in New York never totally specialized in liquor, the enormous, easy profits from the liquor trade meant that pre-1933, the vast majority of their energy was focused on booze, and other rackets were neglected, or even allowed to fall into the hands of less sophisticated criminals. This was all about to change, and gangsters were about to use the well-organized, militant, wealthy organizations they had developed during Prohibition to dominate American society. Lucky Luciano, for his part, went back to his old haunts in southern Manhattan to squeeze more money out of the street. By this time, Lucky was living in the palatial Waldorf Astoria Hotel under the assumed Anglo name of Charles Lane. However, he never forgot who he was and had his homeboys regularly bring him authentic Italian food he couldn't get in his upper-class environs. This was all as well, because while Lucky slept in a building where Italians were rare, he still spent most of his time in the slums of southern Manhattan, 
wheeling and dealing with Italian and Jewish criminals. One of his first projects after 1933 was to organize and dominate prostitution and heroin distribution in his old neighborhood. Organizing these still illegal vices was a natural move for Lucky. Not only were these pursuits illegal after-work vices, not unlike booze, but Lucky had been involved in both prostitution and heroin since he was a child. One of his first adolescent criminal charges involved serving dope to a prostitute, and the never-married Lucky was also a common sight at the higher-end brothels across New York. By 1933, prostitution and heroin in southern Manhattan was largely run by marginally organized Jewish groups with no connections to the six families, who were quickly absorbed or put out of business by Lucky's expanding borgata. Lucky, supported by the Jewish Bugs Meyer mob and Italian members of his borgata, used the carrot and stick method he learned shaking down schoolboys as a child to dominate these new vices. Pimps and madams would pay him $10 a week for every prostitute working for them, and heroin dealers would pay up in a similar manner. If they paid, they'd receive protection from both routine law enforcement attention and other criminals, and complimentary paid lawyers if anyone did get arrested. If they didn't pay up, Lucky would send a bunch of hardened goons to smash up their brothels or dope spots. In early 20th century America, prostitution and heroin were seen as considerably seedier than selling booze or gambling, and La Cosa Nostra would eventually pull out of these crimes for reasons of public relations and honor. Lucky's entree into these dirty crimes would eventually cause legal problems for him, and showcased his disdain for old-school mafia values. In Lucky's mind, if it made money, he'd do it. More importantly than the seedy street stuff, Lucky, along with most of the other Italian bosses, began to get deeply involved in complicated labor racketeering. This labor union stuff was the future for organized crime and would largely replace booze as the main day-to-day moneymaker for the five families until at least the 1980s. The ties between organized crime and the burgeoning U.S. labor movement were natural. Both labor unions and the mob primarily recruited young men and women out of the ethnic urban slums, and there was significant overlap between the two groups. Labor unions also had little official recognition at this point, and were necessarily militant organizations, which both used violence to maintain strikes and were routine targets of violence from police and private security firms employed by the bosses. Before Prohibition, most of the gang members who would go on to create the five families were involved in what was called labor slugging, hiring out their muscle to labor unions to support violent strikes and to beat up scabs and managers, or conversely, hiring out their services to bosses to assault and kill labor unionists. Most of the Italians and virtually all of the Jews we have talked about in this series were somehow or another involved in this labor slugging before Prohibition. And this violence was arguably vital to the development of American organized labor in the face of violent repression from the bosses. Initially, this labor slugging was simple, one-off contract work. But beginning very early, some of these violent criminals began to use their connections with the labor unions and their capacity for thuggish violence to insinuate themselves into the leadership of many powerful labor unions across New York and the country. Once in control of the unions, mobsters turned them from organs of working-class power into profit centers. The schemes were almost unlimited. Most directly, mobsters would charge for labor peace, and regardless of labor conditions, major employers could expect strikes and picketing if they didn't directly pay the gangsters, and could conversely treat their workers however they wanted if they were paid up. 
Over time, as mob bosses bought extensive legal businesses, they used their labor connections to ensure that they could hire cheap, non-union labor without worrying about the labor action ubiquitous for other owners in the Northeast. After World War II, as labor unions went from militant, underground organizations to pillars of the 20th century American economy, the mob used their control of major unions to get their shooters comfortable, no-show jobs. Name any mobster from the mid to late 20th century, and it's likely that they had some sort of labor union job that they never showed up to. The mafia also raided the union's mutual aid and pension funds with impunity. Beyond directly subverting labor organizations for profit, the mob also used their control of workplaces to completely insinuate themselves in the lives of working-class New Yorkers. For most of the 20th century, every major dock, construction, or industrial site in the New York area and beyond had mafia associates tenuously disguised as unionized workers who spent all day facilitating gambling, drug dealing, and loan sharking schemes targeted at their co-workers. This infiltration of labor unions was accompanied by a similar infiltration of business organizations in New York. Much like with booze, heroin, and prostitution, mafiosos used their power to make sure that everyone in the garment, livestock, grocery, and other businesses paid them to get money in the city. In 1933, all of this was just getting off the ground. And like prostitution and heroin, most of the labor racketeering in southern Manhattan was run by mid-level Jewish criminals. These guys were tough, but no match for Lucky and his multi-ethnic team of hardened killers, and quickly started working for him, other Italian Borgatas, or Dutch Schultz's combine. In all these endeavors, Lucky made sure to employ not only Italians, but Jews, Irish, and other groups as well. Lucky used his reputation for tolerance and fair dealing to be a sort of conduit for Jews and other non-Italians who needed to work with the mob. Whether you're a union activist trying to organize a sweatshop in the Lower East Side, or a streetwalker walking the strip on Broadway, you were kicking up to Lucky, and relying on his protection if you ran into trouble with the law or other Italian wise guys. Meyer Lansky, for his part, was just as enterprising as his childhood friend Lucky, and was busy expanding further into his first love, gambling. If we remember, the mathematically adept Meyer got his first taste of street money scamming corner crap games as a child in the Lower East Side. He never completely turned his back on gambling, and after liquor was re-legalized, he leaned into the vice hard. After labor racketeering, gambling would be the mob's biggest moneymaker in the 20th century, and Meyer's foray into gambling would not only make him outrageously wealthy, but would also change American culture forever. Operating with Lucky's backing and the muscle of his homicidal Bugs Meyer mob, Meyer began setting up high-end illegal and semi-legal casinos across the East Coast. Like so much else in organized crime, this practice was developed on a small scale before prohibition by Arnold Rothstein, but truly perfected by a younger generation of criminals. Many gangsters got in on the scheme, but none was as successful as Meyer. The general M.O. was to move into small towns on the outskirts of major metropolitan areas where you could easily bribe local small-time law enforcement to turn a blind eye to your business. After the gamblers bought the cooperation of local law officials, they would set up high-end, high-class casinos. These businesses would have high-end dining, the best live entertainment, and for those who wanted it, all kinds of gambling. Far removed from the ghetto, street-corner crap games that gave Meyer his start, 
These illegal but brazen casinos were known as carpet joints for the plush, high-end carpeting lying in every establishment. In a nod to gambling's less glamorous side, most carpet joints had lower-rent sawdust joints nearby. Converted farms and shacks where working-class gamblers could shoot dice and drink cheap booze. Much like the speakeasies of Prohibition, both carpet and sawdust joints not only provided an illegal and thus novel activity, they also sold a certain wild, uniquely American gangster form of entertainment, and they were widely successful. New Jersey was a hot spot for these carpet joints, as it was close to New York City but was out of the reach of the city's anti-gambling laws. At one joint, known as the Riviera, which was owned by a gangster named Ben Martin and located just across the Hudson River from Manhattan and Bergen County, gangsters would arrange for limousines to pick up wealthy New Yorkers on Broadway and Manhattan and then ferry them across the Washington Heights Bridge to gamble in peace in New Jersey. Meyer, for his part, didn't really play in New Jersey. New Jersey had its own ethnic slums and its own mafia borgatas and Jewish crews who had first mover advantage over there. Since Manhattan had strict anti-gambling enforcement, Meyer couldn't safely invest in his own turf either. After cutting his teeth running a Rothstein-established casino in Saratoga Springs, New York, Meyer turned south. In 1936, he opened up shop with his brother Jake, running a gambling den in Fort Worth, but he really hit pay dirt later that year in Florida. In the 1930s, Florida was still an almost completely rural, wild frontier swamp. The railroad didn't reach Miami until 1896, just a few years before it got to Nevada, and yearly hurricanes consistently destroyed what little civilization was hacked out of the Everglades. It was Meyer Lansky, more than anyone else, who would transform a malarial, alligator-infested swamp into the seedy, cosmopolitan pleasure destination that Florida became. By 1936, some Jewish gangsters out of Chicago had already set up a fairly low-class sawdust joint in Hollandale, Florida, just outside of Miami that they called the Plantation. Money was good, but these out-of-town Jews quickly ran into problems with local redneck law enforcement. Hearing about this, Meyer went down to Florida with some of his scarier Italian and Jewish friends and offered the Chicago boys an offer they couldn't refuse and bought them out, gaining a controlling stake of the business. Meyer was a natural at running casinos and not only had the mathematical skills to set profitable odds, but also had the style and aesthetic sense to make the casinos attractive to the broader public. Upon buying the plantation, Meyer changed the place's name, settled its legal problems, upgraded the decor, and immediately started handing out money to the locals. His organization openly donated to the local children's hospital, Elks Club, and fishing tournament, and discreetly bribed local politicians and law enforcement. The impoverished farmer community of Hollandale never saw so much money and gratefully accepted it. It turns out that rural cops suddenly got less xenophobic if the Jews and Italians gave them a taste of the profits. Beyond taking care of the natives, Meyer also developed a well-earned reputation for fairness when designing his games. Many other casinos would cheat their customers with loaded dice, rigged roulette wheels, or marked cards. Meyer never did this, and while he used his mathematical genius to keep the odds in his favor, he never cheated. Meyer's Florida Casino, renamed The Farm, quickly became popular and was wildly profitable. And Meyer was soon inviting other mobsters from New York to partner with him to build more casinos in the area, 
creating an entire ecosystem of entertainment, vice, and profit that everyone benefited from. This ability to create loose, mutually beneficial criminal partnerships was a specialty of Meyer Lansky, and likely contributed to his success and survival. Even the most anti-Semitic Sicilian Don would have to admit, if you invested your money with the little Jew, he would never cheat you and always give you a sweet return. Gangsters weren't the only people flocking to Miami, and normal citizens from around the country came to Miami in droves for Meyer's version of Fun in the Sun. In 1929, there were only around a dozen hotels on Miami Beach, but by 1939, there were over a thousand. New York organized crime had arrived in Miami, and it was never going to leave. Meyer personally loved Miami, and while he would maintain addresses in New York and elsewhere, Miami would become his home base as the years went by, and was the place he would eventually retire to in old age. Meyer personally loved Miami, and while he would maintain addresses in New York and elsewhere, Miami would become his home base as the years went by, and was the place he would eventually retire to in old age. Miami also showed Meyer that if you found a place where vice was tolerated, and then packaged that legally permissive place as a glamorous destination, people would travel to it and spend more money than they would have at home. This epiphany made Meyer millions and set the blueprint for Meyer's eventual post-war creation of Las Vegas. Meyer, Lucky, and their colleagues in the five families and affiliated non-Italian organizations were successfully making the transition from prohibition. Far from crushing the mob, the end of prohibition and the business diversification it forced made La Cosa Nostra and affiliated mobs central to nearly every aspect of American life. They were already cultural tastemakers, and everything from the hippest fashion to jazz to modern cocktails were developed and popularized in mob-run bars during the 1920s. But now the gangsters had control of sprawling legitimate businesses and nearly every major labor union in the country. This increasing semi-legitimate power, combined with their continued domination of dope, prostitution, gambling, and other street businesses, meant that this ragtag group of young, slum-raised immigrants was making a lot of money, stepping on a lot of toes, and making a lot of folks very jealous. In the 1930s, Americans of Jewish, Irish, and Italian heritage were still seen as suspicious foreigners by most Protestant Americans. This combined with the parasitic reach of mobsters meant that real investigations were coming. In 1935, bowing to public pressure, the governor of New York reached out to former federal prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey. In 1935, the 33-year-old Dewey was around the same age and had the same fiery intellect and raw drive for the mobsters he hunted, but represented a very different side of the American experience. He would represent law-abiding, Protestant, Midwestern values against these immigrant big-city gangsters, and he was about to create big problems for the mob. Dewey was born in a small town in Oswa, Michigan, to a newspaper owner and a homemaker. He was an avid churchgoer and even sang in the choir. He moved to New York to attend Columbia Law School and had spent most of the 20s as a federal prosecutor in the city, building cases against bootleggers and tax-avoiding gangsters. Early on, he was known to be a monster in the courtroom. With an extreme attention for details and a preternatural ability to catch lying witnesses and cross-examinations. He was also known to be stiff, humorless, aggressive, and obsessive, and attracted scorn and admiration in equal measure. He hated the lawlessness that prohibition and the mob had brought to America, and was a tireless crusader against it. Beyond having his heart in the fight, 
Dewey was also an out-of-towner in a city defined by entrenched interests and a vocal Republican in a city completely dominated by the Democratic Party. In other words, he was an outsider with no affinity for various power networks that buttressed the mob's influence. By the early 30s, Dewey had retired from law enforcement and was working on Wall Street. However, when the governor offered him a job as the special prosecutor to take down the mob, he jumped at the opportunity, even though it meant taking a pay cut. Dewey got into the job with vim and vigor, developing an extensive network of street informants, undertaking grueling tax and financial audits, and engaging in phone wiretaps, a practice that was largely unheard of and took the New York gangsters completely by surprise. The mob and its ancestor organization had faced intermittent repression from American law enforcement in the past, but Dewey represented a new breed of highly professional, well-funded, and tenacious law enforcement that would harry the mob from now on, and eventually bring it to its knees in the 80s and 90s. A speech Dewey gave to rally the public behind him gives us a good understanding of both his views and a fair assessment of the problems being caused by the expanding mob. Dewey said, and I quote, there is certainly not a family in the city of New York which does not pay its share of tribute to the underworld every day it lives and with every meal it eats. This huge, unofficial sales tax is collected from the ultimate consumer and the price he pays from everything he buys. Every barrel of flour consumed in New York City pays its toll to racketeers, which goes right into the price of every loaf of bread. Every chicken shipped into New York City pays its tribute to the poultry racket out of the pockets of the public. There are few vegetables or fish markets in the city of New York where merchants are not forced by sluggings, destruction of goods, threats, and stink bombs to pay a heavy toll. Being smart and relatively nonviolent, Meyer and Lucky initially got off relatively unscathed from Dewey's investigation. There are even reports that Meyer and Lucky dry-snitched on their enemies to Dewey, providing him with information about a Jewish gangster named Waxy Gordon who they were beefing with in southern Manhattan. However, Dewey knew about both of them, and his attentions in the early 30s might have been part of the reason Meyer moved to Miami. Lucky, for his part, was more tied to the city. He also was the recognized, if secret, leader of an Italian borgata, and while Dewey wasn't yet aware of the specifics of the five Italian families and Dutch Schultz's Jewish combination, he was starting to figure it out and explicitly target the bosses. That being said, talk of killing Dewey was out of the question, at least for the Italians. In the first commission meeting, Lucky had insisted on making strict rules against assaulting or killing non-corrupt law enforcement. This was not out of respect for the police. Rather, Lucky realized that killing law enforcement would be ultimately counterproductive for the mob. Corrupt police were fair game, but unlike La Cosa Nostra's Sicilian predecessors in the old country, Italian-American wise guys were strictly prohibited from murdering law enforcement for doing their jobs. However, despite this, Dewey was not completely safe. He was putting pressure on the Italian bosses, but our Jewish friend from the Bronx, Dutch Schultz, was under special attention. If we remember, Dutch was a special type of violent, blinding people with medical waste and whatnot. While these tactics had allowed him to dominate, they also meant that Dewey had armies of small-time criminals and honest citizens who were willing to inform on Dutch. Dutch's combination was also probably more powerful than any one of the Italian families and was wildly profitable, and Dewey had the financial records to prove it. 
Dutch was not Italian, and though he was grudgingly respected by the five Italian families as an equal, he never made any agreement not to target law enforcement. Dutch was not ready for the complicated financial audits Dewey was coming with, and by 1935 he had already beaten one Dewey-led tax evasion case at great cost and was looking at another indictment, also brought by Dewey. While the Italians wouldn't touch Dewey, as far as Dutch Schultz was concerned, if a literal choir boy from the Midwest came to town to fuck with his money, there was only one solution to that problem. By 1935, Dutch was openly talking about how Dewey had to go. The biggest gangster in New York had put a hit on the biggest lawman, threatening to destroy everything Meyer and Lucky had put in place. Someone was going to have to die. Next time on Our Thing, we'll look deeper into Dutch's schemes, both targeting law enforcement and a new breed of African-American mobster in Harlem. We'll also look into how Meyer, Lucky, and their friends in the commission reacted to it all. See you then.